0: Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are choosing to do things a bit differently. We are choosing to prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships while building a business that creates a meaningful impact in the lives of the people that we love, and it also generates the wealth for us to design a beautiful life on our terms. And if you are here as a first-time listener or as a seasoned listener, I just wanted to take the time to tell you how much I appreciate you, I love you, And thank you so much for investing in yourself and showing up so that you can expand and grow. Every single week, I'm interviewing epic humans, making a beautiful impact in the world to support you to do exactly the same. And I do my very best to curate what I call real humans. And it's an acronym I made up. It stands for respectful, enthusiastic, appreciative, and loving. I found that all the best relationships I had in my life have that commonality of them being real and following and having those characteristics. So I invest a ton of research and time to pull out the stuff that is going to bring you the most value to share with you so that you can go out and make a meaningful impact. So with that said, today's legendary leader of impact is Victoria Wick. And in this episode, you're going to learn so much, but I want you to look out for three specific things. Number one, how Victoria went from moving to America with her parents and $30 to building a multi-million dollar business with over five. $500 Hundred million million in retail sales while prioritizing her family life incredible stuff number two She tells some incredible bootstrapping stories of starting her company with no money to the empire that she built it into But I want you to look out for how she did it by getting started by walking into a neiman marcus and talking to the assistant manager She also tells an incredible story about how she secured her jewelry when she lived in a sketchy part of town and other crazy things like getting her design stolen from her all of that is to look forward to in today's episode. And number three, I want you to look out for storytelling secrets from her experience of having over 19 years of being a TV personality and literally being seen by tens of millions of people. And at this point, I'm sure you're probably wondering who the heck is Victoria? So Victoria is the epitome, if you couldn't tell already, of the rags to riches American dream story. She immigrated from South Korea to America with her parents with only $30 and has built a multi-million dollar business with over $500 million in retail sales. After a series of corporate jobs, Victoria started her own company in 1989 on a shoestring budget you <laughs> to spend more time with her family. She built her successful business by following her passion for jewelry without sacrificing her family life. She's worked with a variety of retailers worldwide, ranging from major department stores to duty-free shops, as well as internet and TV retailers. For the last 23 years, 19 years on HSN, and four years on Shop HQ, Victoria has been sharing her jewelry designs with millions of viewers during her monthly shows. Throughout her career, she's had to invent ways to have her products consistently outperform her competition and thrive she's the author of the upcoming book million dollar passion and also the author of the science fiction novel shattered sky scheduled to be released in 2022 and victoria is also the host of the popular podcast million dollar passion a show dedicated to helping others turn their passion into profits i had a blast spending some time with victoria she is an incredible human being very generous with her time and a fountain of knowledge and somebody that has gone through some crazy things in her life and is here because she cares and because she loves serving and sharing her hard-fought wisdom with incredible people just like you. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible conversation with my new friend, Victoria Wick. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? the good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials podcast. Victoria, welcome to the show. Beyond excited to have you here today. This is going to be an absolute blast.
1: So excited to be here, and thanks for inviting me to your show.
0: Of course. Well, Victoria, as people have heard from your bio, they got a a little bit of a taste of your incredible story and where you came from. And I thought we would zoom in on one particular era of your story, and that is an age that I think you were going through lots of really interesting things in your life, and that was the age of 13. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about your, your experience, what was going on in your life at around 13, what your school situation was like, kind of give us some context and paint the picture for us.
1: Yes. So my parents, I came from South Korea. I was brought here by my parents. Uh, They believe that um, they had four girls and and a and a boy, and uh, they believe that for their girls it would be better for them to have much more opportunities in America as opposed to South Korea at the time, and it is still like that today a little bit. You know, the culture culturally, they prized boys, and you know girls were not as well, I guess, regarded or wanted or you know, whatever the girls opportunities were limited. So they brought us here. And when we get got here at the time, politically, Korea was run by a dictator, they you know, could do whatever they want. And they didn't like the fact that we were going to leave the country with some money. So everything got frozen. And so we started our lives here as $30 in our, to our name, no family, friends or connection whatsoever. We had no financial resources. We didn't speak one word of English. So at age 13, I was the oldest of the five. I had to help, help my parents raise the rest of the siblings. And my, I took my brother to the youngest child to nursery school every day, dropped them off on the bus. <laughs> so, you know, I don't want to get go into all the details, but that was what was going on. And as you can imagine, it was pretty depressing. I went through times of, you know, uh, self doubt, doubting really my whole world, you know, upside down. And it just took a lot just to, you know, focus and figure out what it is that I could do to improve the situation that I have at hand. Because it mm. was clear that, you know, the system, my parents, no one could really help me. So
0: yeah, yeah. that's incredible. I want to zoom in on your school experience, because from, from another interview I heard you give, you didn't end up in the best school. So I can only imagine like a 13 year old not speaking the language and you get put in the environment that you get put in. So can we talk about like your first few days of school, what that was like as somebody that didn't speak English and the particular school you're at, and what, were, what, were, what was going on there?
1: <laughs> yeah. So I ended up going to school in East Los Angeles, East LA, which is, you know, kind of like near South Central. So it's one of the most dangerous areas still is today. I mean, that, things have not changed much. My school, even at that time, it was fenced in and we had lots of violence. You know, there were police cars almost every afternoon. My parents, my sister and I, we had to walk to school in that environment, you know, the neighborhood was not that safe. But, you know, we were scared, really scared, but kept to ourselves. And, you know, I kept thinking to myself, I could not have been put on earth just to suffer and die like, like this, you know, so in a way, it was depressing, but it was also motivation for me to do the best I can to get out of there, get out of that environment.
0: That's beautiful. And I know that one of the first steps you obviously had to take was learning English. So you have this really cool story of your dad and kind of how you guys worked together to teach English. So talk about some of your first steps on how you ended up learning English.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So back then we didn't have English as second language classes or anything. I mean, this we're going back to 1970s. So my dad himself, he himself didn't speak English either. So he had a, he had gotten an English, the English dictionary. He had Brought with him Korean to English, English to Korean, but he bought himself an English to English dictionary, which he didn't really want to use. You know, he couldn't. You look up an English to English, like if you were to pick up Arabic to Arabic language, you wouldn't have any clue what to do,
0: right? Zero idea was going on. So,
1: <laughs> so he picked it up, and he basically would circle any word that was less than you know fewer than five you know uh, characters. And so basically, he would go through, you know, A, he would do like five of this. He went through all the way through Z. So every day I wrote them down. And when I look up a word, there would be like five other words that I didn't understand what they were in the definition section of it. So I went ahead and did it because that's the only thing I could do. I couldn't drive. I didn't have a job. I still had, you know, the younger kids at home, did all that. And interesting story. I'm going to wrap myself back to this at the end of this interview is that it took me a while to like learn just a few words at, at all at school. So the first few days when I had to go to the bathroom or I was hungry, I you know, couldn't figure out like, what time zone it is, you know, what times do people actually eat or do anything. So I would actually have to draw most of my words out, almost like a pictionary, right? So I was already really interested in art way back, you know, when I was going to school in Korea, I wanted to be an artist like Van Gogh, you know, we came from a pretty affluent family. It wasn't like we were super rich or anything, but we were upper middle class. And so the drawing part of it kind of came easier than trying to not to speak to someone. So later on, when I became a jewelry designer, you know, trying to draw very detailed pieces out, you know, became very natural to me. So instead of speaking, it was easier to draw things out, like instead of talking to a manufacturer and saying, you know, I really want a small stone here, or I want a look that's this, I was able to draw that out pretty quickly. So I got a lot of practice. It's interesting, when you don't speak any language, and you have to draw everything out, and you force yourself to do that, how advanced you can get pretty quickly, because it becomes a pretty necessity, instead of, you know, something you do for fun, or something you do when you have time.
0: It's yeah. so interesting that that seed was planted then, you know, it was like, it, it came out of survival, but like you having to learn how to communicate your ideas in a form that people understood without even being able to communicate a language, that's like the the simplicity at its core, right? Like being able to convey right. a message with a, with a picture. And so that's so cool that that was like a early seed of genius that obviously manifested into some incredible things later. So love that. And I love, and actually, I think I found out earlier, you ended up having, because of what your dad was doing for you and circling the words in the dictionary, you ended up learning more English or having a better English vocabulary than most other kids in your grade. Is that, did I remember that correctly?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Cause you know, when you look at the, I found out much later, much later that kids at age 13, I mean, really smart kids, you know, they get straight A's and all that too. You know, they really, their world revolves around, you know, 2000 to 2,500 words. That's their total vocabulary in America. So if you look at, I was going through about 200 words a day. And so I thought, you know, I was at, I mean, by the second year, I was at tens of thousands of words. And I'm like, you know, I was learning because at some point I started learning words that are bigger than five, you know, five letters. Mm -hmm. I mean, learn things like contradiction or, you know, rejuvenation and stuff like that. Because I didn't, there was no purpose in learning certain words. It would just circle these words. And so I thought, gee, I better stop because, you know, but yeah, I I was pretty fluent within a year,
0: I would say. I think that's, that's beautiful that even in a circumstance where you didn't have much under your control, you took the one thing that you could control and you actually turned it into something that you ended up surpassing the majority of people that were in your grade. So, And I also can only imagine too, coming from an upper middle class and then coming to America with $30 in your pocket, like- like you, you must've been feeling a little bit sorry for yourself, but at least you took a, a positive perspective of what can I actually impact? So I love that. I, w- I wanna talk about one more story about kind of like the, the, in the beginning, and then we'll kind of talk about what you were hinting at before about going into the jewelry business, which you have incredible stories there. So the other story I wanted, wanted to dive into has to do with your dad again. And it has to do with an orange. I don't know if that that reminds you of exactly what I'm talking about, but if if, that, if you could tell that story, I think that'd be incredible.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we, first of all, we, in my mind, you know, we, in my mind, as when I was growing up, like right by the beach, you know, days are slower there. We lived on a a very small little Island. And, you know, as a kid, you, you feel like you have everything. You know, I had a mom, I had my dad, you know, they didn't seem to be gone all the time. You know, my dad worked, but my mom was a stay at home mom. We had a couple of people helping, you know, somebody who cooked for us because we had five kids there. And a lady that cleaned our home. We had a driver. So, you know, that was very much a culture at the time. People who are somewhat affluent had all these things. You know, today that's not the case. Today it takes a lot of money to have all that. But at the time, we had all that. We came here. We didn't have any money. So this was before the world become became so globalized. So we, I never actually had an orange before. <laughs> you know, it didn't, they didn't grow that in South Korea. I mean, now you can buy oranges everywhere, but. So, when we came here, we wanted to have it. Like, it was like, oh my God, like we've had tangerines and other things like that, that was pretty sour, you know, when we were back home. But here it was like what we wanted to have it. My dad brought home one single orange and, you know, he cut them in eight sections because that's even numbers. There were seven of us in the family. So, you know, we each got a section, pretty much a small section. And, you know, like whatever we had, we shared it. We did what we can. But the whole point, I think, when I'm looking back at this, for anyone listening right now is that, you know, I deal with a lot of millennials, my daughter is, you know, 30, and all her friends are somewhere between, you know, 28 and 34. I got a bunch of nephews and nieces, they're all within that same range. And, you know, I, it'd be pretty easy today to feel like the American dream is, you know, moving farther and farther away from you. Uh, it doesn't matter how hard you try. Other people are succeeding faster than you. you you're just lost because like, there's a lot of conflicting information out there on the Internet. You know, is there a recession? Is there inflation? Is there, you know, we don't know. But I think what you really have have to do, uh, looking back on my own experience, is that you just have to figure out what are your strengths and what can you do today that, you know, instead of like cutting out all the noise, just cut out all the noise instead of listening to all these experts, because you're your own expert. Right. You know what you can do. You know what you want to do. You know how you want to live your life. And you know the demands that you have. Like I, I've i always had demands of having to take care of my parents, my, you know, my siblings. I'm still the oldest. And just before we went on air, we we're just talking about having to take care of my mom. And, then you know, my husband's the oldest in his family. So his mother passed away last year at age 100 and she was like a couple of weeks away from 101 wow. so you you know what you're, you know what you need to do so you understand how much time you have what kind of life you want to live and for me in that picture in that scenario when i landed here i realized or i thought that the american dream was definitely not attainable for me at all okay there was my dad used to tell us you know america is just it's a, it's basically a paradise and all you need is an opportunity. You could, you can succeed, you know, if you want to, all that. And I, I used to think it was crazy after one year of you know, being here. But, you know, I still believe that I could do something to improve my life. It's not like it's all or nothing. She, you know what I mean? Like it's not like you reach the American dream one day or you have nothing. You can still live a pretty decent life. So I thought as long as I was never gonna be rich, I was never gonna attain my American dream, I was never going to be you know, anybody famous or anything, I might as well just enjoy my life, I might as well really enjoy the life I'm living. So at that point, I had all these, you know, sort of like, non negotiables of my life. I didn't want to work more than so many hours a day. I didn't want to work certain hours of the day. I didn't want to risk, you know, I didn't want to go and ask my parents for money to start my business. I mean, all these things became non negotiable and when you figure out clearly how you want to live your life you actually can live that life and in my case i would say i did more than achieve my american dream many times over in in every facet you know meaning the amount of time just in fact when we started our our talk you're the only this is the only podcast i i'm doing for the months of july and august because usually we take the whole month of july and august off and I've done that since I started my business my kids were in school at that time. So every year we would take the summers off and it was just, that's one of those th- things that are not
0: That is so cool. Well, first of all, I, I, I'm i honored to have you during during that sacred time. So I didn't even know that. And it's also cool that you built- you have those non-negotiables, you have those rocks that you know need to be in your calendar and th- that you built around that. And I think that's so important to determine ahead of time is like, what are those rocks? What are those I need to take June and July or July and August off with my family, the components of what success means for you. So I love all that. And I love how you started to masterfully transition into some of the ways that you were you alluded to knowing yourself and knowing your passions and being able to monetize your passion, which as I know is absolutely at the core of what you do and what you're passionate about teaching other people to do. So let's start diving into how you've been able to take your passion, identify it and build, and eventually do over $500 million in retail sales, leveraging it, which is absolutely incredible. But let's, I mean, let's, let's bridge the gap between where what we were just talking about and where you started and i thought that maybe a good place to dive into the early days of your retail sales is walking foot or stepping foot into neiman marcus so talk a little bit about how you went from not even having an i like not like not having money not being able to start anything in, in jewelry to actually getting those first few sales and what did you do to actually make that happen
1: yeah, so basically I, I want to step back a little bit. So sure. what happened was, and I'm sure you've heard this before, you know, many times over, in Asian families, I'm not even sure that's just the Asian thing. It could be on all, you know, a lot of immigrant families. I was told that the the fastest way for you to achieve your American dream is to get hyper educated, get this, you know, degrees from elite colleges, and you climb the corporate ladder and you know, you could have you could or the other option is to become a doctor, lawyer, you know, or CPA. And this is how you get your job security. And this is how you're going to find your freedom, financial freedom. I I did everything I was supposed to do. And I thought at the time it was kind of odd because my parents brought me here so I could be whatever I wanted to be. And then they're telling me, you know, I have to do this <laughs> to do really was to become an artist and or a writer because I saw my world through books. You know, I'm a real avid reader. And But I did, you know, what they told me to do. And I went and got my degrees at UCLA and USC, you know, and I, and I, I was a great student. I, I did everything I was supposed to do. And I did get, I was working, you know, at a decent company, getting pretty good money. What I didn't realize was at that time, I, I was miserable. You know, I was working, I would say about 12 hours a day, not because my boss demanded it, but I worked about 90 minutes from my work. Okay. I lived in 90 minutes from my work. It was a 90 minute commute. And in LA, if you don't leave at like 630 and you leave at seven, you don't get there till nine. So Mm -hmm. basically I needed to leave early and I was always the first person there. And I always left after the traffic died. So I didn't, you know, I basically went to work about 630, started driving. So I took the Santa Monica Freeway. I was on the streets, then the 10 Freeway, then the 405 to the 101 to 134, and then I had to get off. I mean, it was just a lot of freeways, you know. Mm-hmm. And those are, the t- those are probably the busiest freeways, like four busiest freeways in the world, and I had to take all of them. So, and then you know, I was miserable because I was working just crazy number of hours, and I was in meetings forever. And I didn't have a lot of freedom, you know, my boss would tell me, you know, we're doing this today, instead of, you know, what I thought it was more appropriate, because I didn't really have status. So and then when I got promoted, and I earned myself, you know, a promotion after promotion, it came with more hours, you know, so I was working on weekends at home. And I thought, you know what, I don't have any economic freedom, any emotional freedom, for one thing. And as far as economic freedom, not sure that this was actually going to be the end. You, You know what I mean? Like, Working more and more hours is not sustainable at at the, at that time. So I so I took off, and when I took off, when I quit my job, started in my own company. And I I'm going to talk a little bit about why I went into jewelry as opposed to other things. And this has to do with identifying your passion, but also what passions. I mean, most people have more than one passion. I hope everybody listening has more than one passion, right? You you know, life is so interesting and it's beautiful if you make it. And there are just so many aspects of life that, you know, some people might want to write books and you might want to write songs. You might want to, you know, be good at photography. You might meet, you you know, you might want to be good at languages, who knows what, but you've got all these passions. So think about the one big idea that is going to, that you can monetize that you can enjoy for the rest of your life. And that's the whole, I guess that was the reason why I chose jewelry. Now, when I chose my, you know, I thought, when I looked at, so I was one of the first generations of women, first generation of women that went to work outside the home. And, you know, we we had titles like, in fact, I was director of marketing for a company, you know, we weren't like receptionists and secretaries anymore as a, as a generation of women. And what I realized was like, you know, most women dressed like men, you know, we had to wear little tailored suits, tailored skirted suits, let's put it that way. And we had little you know, starch, iron, cotton. I remember taking my shirts to the same place where, you know, my husband went to his and, you know, we had to pretty much dress like men. And there was no way you could identify one woman versus any other woman, just like a lot of men who, who, you know, today are dressed in a corporate environment. So I thought, you know what, like back home, I remember my grandmother had a box of jewelry and it was, They weren't expensive but they had there were interesting designs and they had a story behind every piece like you know in asia like when you get married the husband's family would you know give grant you a box of jewelry that's kind of your inheritance typically it's done in 24 karat gold and there was a story about which during the war all that stuff they had this little box and i thought in america it's a young country for for sure but they didn't really have anything like that you know it was mostly when people bought any jewelry it was kind of a status you know i got this two carat diamond from tiffanys and you know i'm rich it's kind of that's the aura you got you didn't really have sentimental value which is completely opposite from what i was used to so i thought you know what human beings are human beings there's no way that there was no demand for this, demand for beautiful, elegant jewelry that didn't have to cost a fortune that you could have with you, a piece of, you know, a, a symbolism of something. So I thought, you know, I can, I worked, the, the last company I worked for was a jewelry company and I kept asking my boss the same thing. You know, there is really a market for, do you remember, you probably are too young to remember, but. They, they used to have like things like number one mom and, you know, best friends or things like that, you know, that would call them talking charms. But it was before the talking charms I was working with this company. And I thought, you know, there's there's a real market for this and uh, nobody wanted to listen to me. So I thought, you know, what, I'm just going to go do it and see, you know, so I did it. But the problem is when I started my company, I had no money. Jewelry samples cost money. They take, you know, if we wanted to make a sample, in fact, like I'm going to show you something, this sample, for example, if I just wanted to make a simple sample like this, and it's highly original, the mold cost today, but today it's like $300. Okay. But back then it was like $1,200 because today we had CAD CAM. So all you're paying is basically computer time somebody who's a computer engineer's time and uh, you print out the model and the price of gold and whatever this is, is all that's costing. At the time, at the time I started the company, somebody had to make a master mold and it would take a week or two and it would be, you know, anywhere from $300 to $1,200. So you can imagine if you wanted to show 10 samples, it's $3,000 to, you know, 12,000, which I didn't have. So I decided you know what, I'm just not going to, you know, I I thought about asking my parents for money, you know, my aunt back home to see if she can wire transfer the money. I was like, you know what, why would I risk their money? There's a pretty good chance I might go out of business. Why would I risk their money? Something that they have, you know, saved for all their life. I don't deserve that. And so I basically started sketching out things and I thought, you know, I'm just going to drive down to some stores and see if, you know, customers might like it. So the Neiman, there was a Neiman Marcus in Saks Fifth Avenue right on basically on the corner of Wilshire Boulevard where they Drive. They're right across from one another. And I, you know, basically got up there in my Pinto hatchback. It's probably, they're probably wondering why that car was there, because it was really it was a two thousand dollar car. Even back then, that was a pretty pathetic thing. But, you know, got up there and I asked them as to see the uh, assistant manager of the department store and asked, like, if um, I have no business being here, I'm not a businesswoman, I'm not a jewelry designer, I aspire to be one someday, and I have, you know, some designs, Could you would you mind taking a look at it and see if I could sell it? I don't have any pricing or anything. I'm not asking you to buy anything, I, I asked her. And she said, oh, my God, these are beautiful. And then she started getting everybody else, like her salespeople, were, oh, my God, these are beautiful. Like, they were all saying the same thing. They were drooling over my, my renderings. And they said, you know, we can sell it. And I said, well, for how much? And she said, it doesn't really matter how much it is. We'll sell it. So I said, well, okay, well, you know, that's, I thought to myself, that's really not real world because most people I knew would think twice about buying a $50 item or something, you know, personally. Yep, absolutely. So, so I thought, okay, well, you know what I, I left her. She asked me if I can leave the designs because she said, basically the, this was a very Hollywood village, a lot of Hollywood people. I mean, they still shop there, but they're now shop at a boutique stores. At the time, that's where studios shopped, movie stars shopped there. And so this lady said, the assistant department manager said, most of our customers don't want what's out there already. You know, they love lookbooks and they love, you know, things that no one else has, but money is no object, so We can sell it. You know, can you leave it here? And I said, sure, because I knew I can redraw them. <laughs> so I did the whole redrawing, which I can do this pretty quickly. And a couple of days later, I went to Saks Avenue, the competing stores, and I got the exact same reaction. You know, they were like, oh my God, like, you know, we can sell it. So basically we ended up, I ended up selling like eight pieces, the first, just for off of those renderings. And it was like thousands of dollars. And, but the thing is, I still had to deliver the goods. You know, I didn't have connections or anything. That was like a whole other story. But I knew enough to know there's such a drastic difference between most people I knew. When I say most people I knew, I'm not just talking about people- that are in my circles, like, you know, my mom and my friends, but people that I knew at my work, for example, you know, people that I had to interact with, you know, in other circles, they still wouldn't say money's no object. I, I, you know, I want this. So I thought, you know what, I better get a, a, a real read on real America somewhere. Cause if I'm going to be a, you know, if I'm going to do a hundred thousand uh, dollars, a few hundred thousand dollars, eventually, I'm going to have to crack the code of what Americans want, American women want. So then I went to, you know, Bullocks, Robinsons. These, these are all, you know, they're now like the Macy's and you know other stores. At the time, we had those. That's what they were called. Eventually, I went to all the department stores and other stores around me, and I. The only thing that was really hard about that is. At that time, I was a very shy person, pretty shy just naturally, you know, because I didn't have a whole lot of friends growing up. I pretty much had to take, you know, I had no time to have any friends when I was young, as you remember, you know, when I was 13, I had to take care of my four other siblings, you know, under me. And so I had no time, you know, no time for anybody. So I didn't have a lot of socialization skills. So just to walk up to a store and asking, you know, who's the manager, who's the assistant manager. And, you know, having this dialogue was the hardest part for me. Like it was really hard to, kind, of, and I wasn't confident that my drawings actually were anything special really. And I thought, I just thought, you know, any moment somebody's going to tell me, get out of here, like, What the hell are you doing here? You know, kind of thing. But I kind of overcame those fears because I had no money. That was the only way I was going to be able to, you know, get a read and figure out if it's something that, that's sustainable. So I went ahead and did that. And I realized there were about eight designs that I felt like I could sell anywhere, you know, that wasn't really outlandishly beautiful, but it was much more mass, you know, appeal. And then I had to figure out, okay, now I, I figured out that there is demand for this. So how do I now know that I actually really have a business? Who's going to buy it from me? And how much of this do I need to sell? So I, and you know, how soon do I need to sell it so I can start to you know, figure out if, I, if it's sustainable? So I, you know, I set my goals at that time. If I could just make $2,000 a month, which was a lot less than what I used to make in a corporate job. But if I could work only 20 hours a week doing that, it'd be worth it. Because I wanted to be a full-time mom, you know what happened was one thing that I forgot to tell you earlier is that when um, my early days in America, I realized at that time, you know, I had pretty much unlimited time with my mom when we lived in Korea. Came here, and then I I became kind of an orphan. My parents went to work right away. They each worked two jobs, Monday through a Sunday, pretty much. I rarely saw them. So I thought to myself, you know what, when I was making decent money, you know, and I had some means and I kept thinking I could climb the corporate ladder and I was very good at my job as well. I thought, you know, I'm going to end up having to hire nannies to take care of my children. And that was definitely not negotiable because I never. that's the thing I really hated the most about my life at that time. So so I was willing to work on a lot less money, but if I can make $2,000 a month, I would give up the dream of ever owning a home, ever buying new cars. Um, I wanted my children, you know, I wanted to be a present mom. So I thought that would be what I was willing to do. So, you know, then I thought, well, how do I make the $2,000 a month? So I figured out, you know, at that time they had all these rules about if you do direct mail and the postage was like nine cents, if you do direct mail, it's, you know, you get like 10% response rate. And then of the 10%, they respond to you, you're going to close about 4% of that, right? So then I did the math, then I thought, you know, I could, I'm going to make sure that I really, instead of, just, I didn't have money to buy mailing list either. So I went downstairs on Ventura Boulevard, there's all these travel agencies out there. And I used to just sit there and, you know, t- told them I'll answer phones for you. But you know, I want to be able to use your, use your book, because they had like hotels, gift shops, and you know, the duty free store managers all that stuff. So, I basically wrote 50 letters a day every day. And it had to be typed like IBM selectric typed <laughs> cuz we have, But, you know, I was able to do that 20 hours a week. And believe me, in 20 hours a week you can get a lot done. And so, I did it and I realized at that point, okay, well, what happens if somebody calls me at, you know, noon on Wednesday? And those are the hours I'm not working because, you know, I got, you know, my kids there. But what happens if somebody calls me at four o'clock in the afternoon because, you know, I'm cooking dinner? Am I going to not answer the phone? So I thought, you know, that idea of working certain days of of the week, nine to five, and I'm slicing out how many hours a week I'm going to work, didn't work for me at that time. So, you know, (laughs) I realized, okay, well, you know, this isn't going to work. So do I cave? And work like crazy hours like other people do, or do I figure out a way to? Is this a non-negotiable too? And it really was a non-negotiable. So you know, there was about a couple of months I started thinking about. Okay, you know, what do I do now? You know, do I go back to work like a part-time job at that point, or do I continue to keep this dream alive? And one day I woke up and I I realized, you know what? It was like six o'clock in the morning, and I realized there has to be some place on Earth where it's like daytime. And I figured out there's about 50 countries in Europe that it was like midday, somewhere between like, you know, noon to three o'clock in the afternoon for them. And I thought, you know what, this is a great idea because, you know, instead of sending them letters, I can fax them. And when I fax them, you know, fax, I think AT&T, you know, these companies, we didn't have internet back then. So when you fax them, it's like today's FedEx packages it would come, you know, whenever you fax something, somebody would actually bring it to your desk because it didn't come in a letter, right? Faxes came in, like, so important people had faxes, they sent faxes. I did it because it was cheaper than making a phone call or or a, a postage stamp internationally. So I ended up opening London, Galleries Lafayette in France, you know, and then I ended up opening Neiman Marcus here. So I basically ended up having a global business. But the only the only thing that I had to do was start to work at six o'clock in the morning, you know, every day. So I worked basically six to eight when, you know, before my kids had to, I had to drop my kids off at school. And then I dropped the kids off at school. I work from like 10 to two, didn't skip lunch, just went straight through work and then picked the kids up at two. I left at two, picked the kids up at two 30. And then I didn't work until eight or nine, you know, while they were awake. And it also turns out at 9 PM, it's like 11 AM Asia. So then I ended up opening stores in Tokyo, Seoul, you know, places like that. So I had a truly global business, you know, this little working mom working part-time, I ended up doing it.
0: There's so much value that you just dropped in all those stories, but I just love just anybody thinking like, like just look at some of the patterns that Victoria's already shared with us today. Like, Basically, constraints breed creativity. Like she, she like decided these non-negotiables and built her life around those, and decided to make things work with that. So that's like one thing you saw already in her saying that this is one podcast interview that she's doing, and that she had the time she had to pick up her kids. Like, so I think lots of times we look at constraints and we look at it as a negative thing, but at least from my perspective, and it seems like your perspective as well, it's like having these constraints actually forces you to think and create innovative solutions. So I love that. I love also. So, the, the other pattern I've seen, obviously, is you talked about coming to this country, not knowing the language, what could you do? The first thing, the small step that you could take was you could start speaking English. You didn't know how to start jewelry business. You didn't have hundreds of thousands of dollars laying around. The first thing you could do is take a sketch and walk into a store, you know? So like, I think lots of people get hung up on the massive idea and all the crazy next steps that you could be taking everything you need to do. But I think if, like from what I've seen from just observing your stories, it's like, you just took one small step and that led you to another thing and another thing, which has led to obviously some incredible success for you.
1: Well, you know, Brandon, I think the the thing that I see now, you know, that's different than when I was starting my business is that a lot of people today feel as though you have to have money. You know, there's all these things you have to have. You have to have a unique selling proposition. There's all these buzzwords that people use all the time. We didn't do that back then. You know, for example, in the jewelry business, it's it's one of the most capital-intensive businesses. You, but jewelry samples cost money. Inventory costs a, a fortune. When I actually sold the first few thousand dollars, and I'm like, okay, I'm living in a two-bedroom apartment in Culver City. Okay, Culver City at the time still is. It's kind of like where the nice area meets the real rough area. It's like, it's like the buffer zone. So you're like, you know, I'm, I mean, there were like robberies all the time around me. The good thing, I didn't have a whole lot of stuff. But when I got my inventory, I'm like, okay, how do I secure this, Right? It's everything I have, and how do I secure this? And, you know, a lot of jewelry stores have these floor-to-ceiling safes, and, you know, you see them in the movies, and they're several thousand dollars. back. Even back then, they were like five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 safe, and you needed a place. My apartment, I don't think, would let me actually have it. You needed a place to actually house it. So, you know, so again, all, you know, the jewelry, insurance, all this stuff happens, and that's why jewelry costs a lot of money, you know. So what I did was I just went to the bank, B of A next door. I rented the largest safe they had, you know, their little safe deposit box. And it was like 120 bucks a year. So it's 10 bucks a month. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you think about just common sense ideas, right? Like you don't have to go risk everything you have. And I would, you know, I teach today courses and I also, you you know, I have a book coming out. Same thing. I tell you, do not risk your money you don't need to. In fact, when you risk your money, you're going to go through that money before you actually figure out what to do. <laughs> it's the truth. A lot of people are like, you know, I did this and I did that and, I, and none of those things work, but had I do I if I had to do it over again, I would do blah 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 because you are going to go through the money. Cuz you know, when you have all these options, you try all these things without really thinking the consequences, but when you have no option, you really have to think about, you know, every little detail and the impact that your decisions will have. So Mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, don't let anything stop you. And if you have a great idea and you have your heart in it and you really are intentional about every action you take, you really can succeed. And when I say succeed, I'm just going to define this. Um, For me, success isn't about money or fame. I got plenty of money at the end, but that really wasn't the goal. The goal was to spend more time with my children. Yeah. Goal was to to really mold them and be on a great example and I got to do that built my business on a part-time basis and I still ended up doing more than most people have.
0: Yeah, love that. And you mentioned your new book coming out Million Dollar Passion. I would before we even get to the end I'll highly recommend everybody go check out victoriawick.com. That's V I C T O R I A dot com. You can get on the pre-release list and maybe at the time this comes out, this will be available, but go check that out because I have so much enjoyed going through Victoria's content. And if you've, if like all these seeds of great stories, these have been neatly packaged into some beautiful lessons that can help support you on your journey. So I love that Victoria, there's, there's one other thing I want to talk about before we get into, before we hit recording, we were talking about, Storytelling, you know, and like you, you're on air and every minute is worth $6,000, you're being seen by millions of people. So I I would love to talk about that. But before we get there, there's one other thing that I didn't want to miss. And it's kind of, I would assume somewhere on this part of the journey that we were talking about. There was another podcast I was listening to that you interviewed, you talked about like a, a, a mistake that you've made in the past is that you're very trusting of people. <laughs> and and yeah, and we I had talked have. about this earlier. Yeah, we talked about this earlier about partnerships and how I, I had a partnership that <laughs> has gone south. So I'd love to hear your perspective on this, but I'd also love to hear for you to share the story behind it. I heard you share a story about when you were first trying to get samples, you would talk to a bunch of different people and one person picked up your samples and did something with it. would love for you to kind of share that story and how you recovered from it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it still happens today, believe it or not. So you know, when I first got my samples, you, you know, I, I actually talked to a lot of manufacturers, and they all said, you know, how many pieces, how much can you sell if I make these samples for you? Now, mind you, they're charging me for these samples. So I mean, you know, I don't know why that's even relevant, but you know what I mean. Like if I'm paying a thousand dollars for a sample, they just make the sample. But, you know, they would ask me, how many how many can you sell? And, you know, uh, the other thing is, like, I've always been very honest. I have never changed that part. I, I refuse to become a different person to be successful. So I'm always honest. And, you know, when I would talk to, like, the buyer of Heritage London or something, and I find out that Galleries Lafayette didn't do all that well with that very similar design, I would, you know, she and she wants to order big, and I would say, you know what? I'm just going to let you know that, you know, I hadn't been all that successful with it with another department store, are you sure you want to buy that much of this particular thing? Because I want to make sure that, you know, if you're going to spend the money, you want to go with the sure shots, kind of. So they always respected me. So what happened was when I, some of my manufacturers, you know, a few of them said, you know, uh, they took a look at me and they realized the only thing they're going to get was the sample, meaning that I told them I didn't have a lot of money. So what happens if she gets an order from Neiman's or Saks or any department store? she's not going to have the money to float that inventory. So they basically gave it to some of the top, you know, the bigger companies that are already in the door. And, you know, as luck would have it, my buyer at that time, she and I were supposed, you know, she really liked me as a person. And, you know, she had a lot of empathy for me, you know, for trying as hard as I can. And, you know, a lot of the women that I had two kinds of women, a lot of female buyers, some of them hated me because I was living the life that they wanted to live. You know, I spent a lot a lot of time with my kids, you know, and I had all these days that I couldn't, you know, I, I would take a day extra to, you know, answer their call. They hated that fact that I actually lived a life that they were dreaming of. They they were envious of me, but they didn't want to let me know that. So they gave me a hard time when, in fact, they had the same choices. Right. And then there are other group of women that really respected me for doing what I did. And so they gave me a, you know, a, a little bit of a break. So this buyer said, you know, you know, she, she called me and said, you know, there's a booth over there that has all these all the things that you were showing me in real samples. So some of these, you know, samples went to competitors of mine eventually. And I was like, OK, you know, you learn your lessons. So now, even today, when I do, you know, sample making, I actually do them modularly. So, you know, I'll do like the top part factory A, you know, so it will be mm-hmm. all the differently so that. You know, there's a little, and I also try to build in extreme barriers to entry with the designs, the things that they can not you know I try to specialize in things that you know even if you had the mold, it's really hard for them to execute. so you know I, I became better, you know instead of yeah, better, I just keep i can
0: better. I can only imagine how that felt like the sinking feeling in your stomach when you're getting oh. started. these are your brilliant ideas and you show up at a trade show or you hear about your designs just being taken right from you like that must have been so hard, <laughs> I, but
1: yeah, it's it, awful. And, you know, even right today, most of the things on Etsy, Amazon, eBay, are claiming that I designed it, I would never have put my name on those. There, there are like 70, 80,000 people that are actually making a living off of just, you know, because in the jewelry industry, my name is worth something. But going back to basically being trusting of people, you know, I go through that and, and, you know, I've done a lot of just some, things that really hurt me. You know, I've helped some people that should be really grateful. You know, I had a person that I'm not gonna say which one I had a model on HSN. She wasn't my model, but the company would, you know, put her on my show. And I noticed that, you know, one day she was really having a hard time and, you know, she, it looked like she had been crying or something. She wasn't uh, herself. And I asked her, if any, is anything okay? You know, Everything okay with you? And, you know, she just said, like, you know, my mother got diagnosed with leukemia, you know, and she just was just really, like, upset about it. And I said to her, you know what, you need to you know, but I don't have any money, you know, and blah, blah, blah. So I basically ended up sponsoring her, you know, really encouraging her to go back to college, because you're not going to you can't be a model when you're 40 years old, and you're already almost there. And while you have this time where you have to care for other family members, you could go to school like three, four hours, you know, a day, and you know, four years go by, it goes by really fast. And she didn't have a whole lot of money. I went ahead and you know helped her, and I offered. I told her like, if you can't find financing, I'll I'll start a foundation, you know, for like returning you know moms going back to college or whatever. So she ended up actually going through college and all that, got a great job in broadcasting, and she acts like she doesn't know me anymore. You know,
0: really? Yeah, that's so. so well, yeah, I mean, you have such a heart of gold, and i love I love that about you. It's just like it's so you it's so clear, like how how much you love people and want to help and support and do good in the world. I'm curious, how has your philosophy evolved? Because it's like you said, you still make the mistake of trusting people. I don't think that you should get burned once. And then just because there's some people that get burned and is like, screw this. I'm not trusting anyone ever, ever again, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. And like, the, yeah, so, yeah. so how do you, what is your approach for filtering for high quality people, but also letting go of obviously your early indications that you're looking for when you need to discontinue a relationship?
1: Well, you know, I always go I always say that you don't go into a relationship unless you can trust them unless you can have dinner with them. you know, and what happens, Brandon, is that extreme circumstances, both good or bad, sort of amplify the person they were in the beginning, hmm. meaning that you know up you take let's say i you know you and I are in partnership and you're you're a heart of gold kind of a person and you and we end up doing a business together we end up making three hundred million dollars first year, okay. If your heart was already an amazing, you know, giving person, you're gonna take that money and go. You know what, Vic? Let's go make three billion dollars next year so we can give away a lot more money and we can still be happy. Okay, but some people might go three hundred. You know, all of a sudden, money buys you some fame. Money buys you a lot of means, and you start being mean to people. You start thinking, oh, these I don't want to hang around with these people anymore. You know that you used to hang out with because you know they lower your status or something. So some people. Will actually run away from the the people that kind of made you who you were, right? So sometimes money becomes a curse for some people. And sometimes money and fame becomes a curse for some people. But you know, that's you don't know that when you get into a relationship. There are not there are some signs in some people, like there are some obvious signs, and you should definitely look for them. But you know, a lot of a lot of times you see. Little changes, and it, the change happens over time, and that's why, why I told you earlier that all partnerships eventually end, because that's my philosophy, and I've never seen a partnership end successfully, even when they end successfully, the feelings are not like, "Oh, you know, we just had a great time because you know it's natural for human beings to think, so let's say you and I both you know start a business and we you know we' at fifty fifty, and you know so but let's say you know with the money, let's say we make a million dollars a first year right? And you get the 500, I get the 500. I may invest the 500 in some other things. And I may end up worth 10 million next year. And you may end up, you may have spent your money, even though the partnership was fair, right? So at some point, you feel like, you know what, without me, Brandon is nothing. Or without Brandon, Victoria is nothing. Or I feel like I'm doing 80% of the work, but I'm only getting 50%. When the contract was very clear, right? So motivations change. So I think that's that. But in, when it comes to your original question, you know, I guess this goes back to the very beginning years of my life. When I first came to America back in the 70s, my parents were constantly told, you know, like, we, I can't to Orientals. You know, your, your girls are so adorable. I, w- I wish I could mentor you. But like, you know, my company won't let me to Orientals. My dad used to say, well, what's the Orient? What, what are Orientals? You know, because he didn't even know what they were, right? Mm-hmm. So Even back then, when there were, I'm not, I I don't want to make a political statement. This was not, there was just a fact that fair housing laws were not in place until like 1976, I believe. So here's the thing, no matter what anybody said to me, no matter how they viewed me, because I didn't speak English because we were poor or whatever, I never let anybody define me. So if somebody is ungrateful, if somebody, you know, tries to cheat me, or you get disappointed. I try to think, okay, what are the lessons I learned from this? Because, you know, I don't, I won't let them define me. I don't, I won't let them change who I am. I'm a trusting person, and I'm a giving person, and that's all there is. Mm-hmm. So, if you trust everybody, yeah, you're gonna get screwed over by a few people. Okay, it's just like if you, you know, get up to baseball bat and you, you know, hit ten times, you're not gonna hit it out of the park ten times, right? You're gonna strike out a few times. And that's how I feel.
0: (laughs) So, yeah. So is it, and I know we're kind of coming up on time here. So is it safe to say that you trust people implicitly, but then you're looking for indications and you're kind of quick to look like once you see something that would maybe uh, alter your perception, or you can see there's a different trajectory that that's kind of like where you would start to phase out the relationship.
1: Yeah. You know what, Brenda? Okay. So years ago when I worked for a jewelry company, I heard uh, the one, this one, you know, like it's sem- I would say, it was like a seminar, security seminar, and they had security experts because when you're dealing in gold, a lot of there's a lot of theft that happens, and a lot of theft is actually most mostly there uh, inside jobs. Okay, that, uh, so they were saying that if you, and and I'm be- I'm beginning to believe that this is true. If you take a hundred people and you put a pile of gold on on the highway, okay, a deserted highway, and in a shiny like you know, a plot of gold sitting there, just gold bars and cars are driving by. And he says, if you take a hundred cars and they can all stop and see what the heck it is, about 10% of those people, 10 people were going to take it. They're not, oh my God, this is gold sitting and they just take it. They don't even think about it. Okay. 10 of those people are going to say, oh my God, somebody left this gold. I wonder who this belongs to. You know, I need to call the cops or do something. It's not mine, but you know, so they won't take it no matter what. It's, It's not mine. They won't take it. The other eight, 80 people, they weigh, you know, it's just sitting there. I wonder who that belongs to. But if I don't take it, somebody else will. Or, you know, I'm not stealing it. It's here, right? It's, it's here. I'm not stealing it. And even if I did take it, it didn't belong to me, it was serial number or whatever, I could always tell them that I was going to look for the owner or something. So they look, they weigh in the consequences. They weigh the, the, the opportunity for them to actually get caught. So it's up to you, you know, to to management to make sure that those opportunities don't don't exist for anybody. Okay. Mm, The 10 people that it takes, right? It's up to us. So for us, like, you know, the point I'm trying to say is that if you're in a partnership with something or if you are, you know, doing business with like a manufacturer, it's it's rare that they screw you over the first time. It, they change over time, they weigh, what are the benefits of me, you know, if I make the sample, make a few changes, and I, you know, show it to a few people, but they, they wanted to revise it a little bit, and I get it, am I really screwing Brandon over? Is this really Brandon's original idea? They start to, like, justify themselves, right? Sure. So, so, what I did is I learned to, when it comes to that, I'm not going to give anybody that opportunity anymore, so, uh, you know, I don't, it's not fair to them either. So now, like if I'm doing a flower ring, I'll do just the floral leaf on, you know, to manufacturer A, who who specializes in them. But usually when I'm doing a flower leaf, I would also do, it wouldn't just have a, a band on it. I would have other designs. So I basically would, and then I would have them set stones separately when it, when the pieces are, you know, put together. So. You know, there's a lot. And then I would also protect it with copyrights, patents and trademarks. Now I have over 15,000 copyrights. So, you know, you got to do what you do, but you can't change as a person because that's a beautiful part of
0: the journey of life is discovering these things. 100%. Well. Uh, this has been so incredible listening to all your stories. I know we only had an hour here, already over our time. So I'll totally leave it up to you, Victoria. I have a little bit of a buffer. We can either talk about the storytelling, or we can start to wrap things up. I'll I'll give you the the route here. Whatever works for you.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to do a little bit about the storytelling, and this sure. is really important. This is the the most important part of how I built my business, and it's and I'm not going to go into the whole big talk about the storytelling because that's a whole topic that's very complicated. But here's the thing about storytelling. Everybody has a unique story. Okay. You're a unique person. There's no person, un- unless you're an identical twin, there's no person that's exactly like you with the exact same experiences. So you all have a unique story. And I know you have an amazing story. And when you have this story, you got to learn how to tell that story. And when you tell that story, it needs to be told in the perspective of the person listening, not in your perspective. All right. So in my, when I talk about my business, and you know, when you see me talking on air live, it's really all about them all about other people. Okay, so in order for you to be really successful in anything you do, as an entrepreneur, the only way you really succeed long term is if you if you invest in other people's success. I know it's a really hard concept, but it You got to learn to invest in other people's success before you can succeed. So for example, if I sell to Harrods London, you know, hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff and they love it. And I got my check already and I'm going spending money, but they die with that item. Okay. They have to discount it like crazy because it doesn't sell. You think they're going to order from you again? Probably not. Right. But if I, if I made sure that they sold through the hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff in the first four days, what are they going to do? They're going to come back and, Order three hundred thousand dollars probably. They're like more than have enough. They'll probably tell like six other people. You no, know, they don't actually compete with Galli's Lafayette, but they go to the same trade shows. They're gonna say you ought to try that Victoria chick. I mean, you know, they they completely changed my business. So this is how you succeed. It's the only way you succeed. So when you, so when I talk about like if I'm doing business to consumer, like when I'm on TV, I'm talking to the consumer. Instead of talking about, and I'm gonna demonstrate this to you. Instead of talking about. Me, 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 all the time. And you know, and I say this because a lot of times entrepreneurs, even when you're talking about your bio, you don't really realize you are talking about me, me, me. Because as entrepreneurs, we're always told, you know, you have to set up your expertise, you have to matter to people, they have to learn to trust you. So how are they gonna trust me if I'm a nobody? So I'm gonna have to tell people how great I am or my accomplishments. And so you start to basically, you know, for example, if you're selling like hardwood floors and you, you might say something like on your website, you might say, you know, welcome to, you know, Brandon's, you know, flooring. And, you know, I'm the fourth generation, you know, flooring person. We've served this community, you know, for, I don't know, 40 years. You know, my great grandfather invented this and, you know, I do this and, you know, we were just awarded blah, blah, blah. So I use the word we, 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 I this whole time. Mm-hmm. Now, you told an amazing story. You might even say we immigrated from, you know, from wherever, you know, Sri Lanka or whatever it is. I'm just making this up, by the way. And uh, you might say, you know, we started with the first piece of wood my grandfather cut. You know, it's an amazing story. But you're still and that's the kind of story people read it and they might go, you know, that's really interesting. They're really amazing, amazing people. But does it cause action necessarily? Not necessarily. But if you said something, if your website says something like, welcome to, you know, you might even start with your thing like, you know, are you sick and tired of all the confusing information you're finding on Google about flooring? Are you confused about, you know, do you want straight answers? Do you want, you know, pricing you can count on? You you might want to actually just listen to their pain point first. And then you say, you've come to, if you are, if you've been searching for just the perfect place, for you and your family to raise your children safely in a beautiful home that doesn't have to cost their fortune, you've come to the right place. Mm-hmm. So we've used the word, if you are looking for these three things, you know, you and your family to you know live in a safe environment, beautiful flooring that doesn't have to cost a fortune, you've come to the right place. Then you can talk about, let me show you how you can enjoy this life. And you can talk about all the different options you might have, you know, benefits of flooring. A, you know, I'm, I'm not a flooring person, but You can see the difference between now you can also talk about, You know, this reminds me of when my grandfather only had 50 bucks and had to chop his own wood, he still made sure that his family can grow up safely, just like you would want to grow up, you know, raise your family safely. So again, you're connecting them emotionally to you, but it needs to be told in terms of their view. Does that make sense? 100%.
0: 100% hundred percent. I and I, I love that so much. And I will just encourage anyone listening. If you go back, I'm gonna just make a guess at the timestamp, maybe 10, 15 minutes in. Like listen to how Victoria tells her stories as well. Cause I was picking up on that as well. It's like she was talking about because she asked in the very beginning, before we hit record, that's how you know Victoria's a pro. She's like, you know, what is the what is what is your what is your audience looking for? What is the value that they're looking for? And if you go listen to how Victoria set up her story, she set it up from your perspective. <laughs> she set it up for like like what your parents are talking about like what, what's going on in your mind. And then even some of her stories, you know, she talked about, she even interlaced some themes of like, she was thinking about reaching out to other people in her family to get money. Like those are all narratives that like may be in your head as an earlier entrepreneur or as a successful entrepreneur, or whatever it is, like she took the time to get to understand you and and perspe- framed the stories from that perspective. So I think that's super beautiful. And obviously I would highly encourage anybody to go check out your podcast, Million Dollar Podcast, which I, I or Million Dollar Hobby, sorry, which I've, I had the honor of being on, which has been absolutely incredible. But go listen to how Victoria positions everybody that's been on the show, because she's a pro at being on air and having, like, like I said earlier, $6,000 a minute, $2,500 a minute, you got to make sure your stories are really, really tight. So thank you so much for sharing that and your mastery <laughs> in that I think it's people would benefit a lot from going deeper with all the stuff that you have available
1: you know, Brandon, you, you know, I know when I interviewed you, this this the one thing that I really noticed about you is that you have to, and I know millennials don't really understand this because they were never taught this. And I think our generation of people kind of did this naturally a little bit, just as political culture at that time, you know, social culture. Here's the thing, this very famous quote by Maya Angelou, people will forget what you've said. Most of the things that I've said, you're going to forget. People forget what you've done, but they will never forget how you made them feel. Right. And you got to really remember this. And, you know, this is true, whether you are going to a cocktail party, you know, meeting you and your wife, or I go to a cocktail party, meeting a bunch of people and they say, hey, Brendan, what do you do? Instead of saying, oh, my God, you know, I'm Brandon Bong and I, you know, I'm a podcaster. I'm this and I'm that. And I won this award. You know, yes, you've done that. You, you've done the award. You've got all this stuff. And I want this contest. All the, You can do all this stuff. But that's a lot of eyes. You know what I mean? So if you say something like, oh, you know, I talk to people, you know, I love getting to know people and, you know, I, I love connecting with people and I help people, you know, bring their stories out or, their you know, I, I connect, you know, my audience with, with, you know, so that I can help entrepreneurs succeed or something like that. That's a lot easier to stomach. You you You, you paint yourself as a very different person than, you know, who cares? I mean, you know, who cares if you won ten awards? I mean, you know, who's giving the award, right? And and I, I just think that you, you got to think about how you make people feel. You know, if you say, you know, I'm a lawyer and I went to Harvard and I did this and that, okay, great. You know, there's wonderful. But who who are you really? You know
0: yeah. I mean? and 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 I I want to just say, kind of conclude and say that you it. it you saying that adds even so much more weight to it because you have all people like have done you're not multi nine figure entrepreneur and you literally like you, you you not only say that but you show that like you're not here bragging about everything like you're here say sharing your experiences and like of the incredibly successful entrepreneurs i've had the pleasure of meeting like you're just so like you like this stuff it doesn't even seem to like really matter to you like you just love connecting human to human which is like a, a really beautiful thing so i admire that so much about you and i appreciate that you do that in the world
1: The only thing I want to leave you all with is this. If you are listening right now and you're not an entrepreneur yet, I would highly encourage you to do that. It's not for everybody, but that's the only way you can really impact the world. For me, like when I first came here to America, you know, everybody like couldn't afford that. I find it interesting in America when you don't end up with like a one carat diamond to propose to your wife or to your, to your girlfriend, you're like a social misfit in China. You can come up with a simple jade ring or, you know, nobody cares. You know, it's really the meaning of of, of the two people getting married. So if I didn't start my business, I've sold over 10 million pieces of jewelry on TV. If I didn't start my business, I wouldn't have, you know, millions of women wouldn't have had the idea that they don't have to spend a fortune to have an heirloom piece. They don't have to spend a fortune to actually look better than anybody else. Right. It, It gives them a lot of confidence. So here is the most important thing I want you to leave. You know, you might get the idea from this interview that I came to America, you know, things were rough and then everything kind of worked for me. No, as an entrepreneur, 90% of what you're going to try is not going to work. In fact, 80% of anything you try in life isn't going to really work. You got to keep at it. You have to believe in yourself. If you fail, it's normal. Life is designed so that you fail a few times before you actually achieve any kind of success. If you try to ski, it's designed so you you fall a few times before you, you know, really get your balance. So just remember that you have everything you need, every single thing you need to succeed in life. And success isn't if you look for other things that define success quality of your health, quality of relationships, quality time that you want to spend doing what you love, the money will follow in a very big way. And that's, that's the only thing. Love I that. covered. <laughs>
0: Awesome. Putting a period on that, not adding anything else. The final, final question is, we already talked about victoriawick.com, W-I-E-C-K. And you can also go to milliondollarpassion.com. Go check out Victoria's podcast, all the incredible guests that she has on. Any, anywhere else that you want to tell them that they want to go check out you if they want to follow you in your work?
1: Yeah. They can go to my social media as well. And also, if you want to watch me on TV, I'm on ShopHQ about once a month with my jewelry collections as well. So...
0: Beautiful. Awesome. Victoria, this has been absolutely incredible. I'm just going to have a really quick conversation with you listening right now. And I just want to say you could be anywhere else listening to any other podcast, but you chose to be here listening to Victoria's incredible stories today. And for that, I appreciate you so much. And it would mean the world to me if you could Take this and impact someone's life that we talked about impact so far. If you share this with one person, this can absolutely change someone's life. Maybe somebody needs to hear Victoria's story. They're in a spot where she was, and this and the stories that she tell, told can absolutely uplift them and, and make a massive impact. So, whether you choose to share this story or not, or this episode or not, I appreciate you so much for listening. And, Victoria, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you so much.
1: Thank you.